Welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast, bringing you the latest in health and technology through interviews with disruptive startups and leaders. Subscribers get a new episode every Thursday at 6pm, and I'm your host, James Summerall. Hey everybody, this week we're talking about AI and radiology, and my guest is Dr. Hugh Harvey. For those of you that follow him on social media, you'll know that he's a consultant radiologist and he's an absolute expert in the field of AI and how it applies to healthcare and digital medicine. So he was a consultant in the NHS at Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospital. He's sat on the Royal College of Radiologists Committee for Medical Imaging Informatics as well as their AI working group. He's on several AI and academic committees, to be honest, including the KSS Academic Health Science Network AI core advisory group. He's co-authored loads of white papers and reports on AI um, alongside bodies like Reform, which is an independent think tank, and HEE, so Health Education England. He's also an associate editor at Nature's Digital Medicine magazine. You might remember the Topple review, so Hugh Harvey was co-chair of that review, which looked into digital technology and the healthcare workforce. Hugh's also spent time at startups, so he was the lead for regulatory affairs at Babylon, who had a recent valuation of over a billion. And he was also clinical director at Chiron Medical, who recently did a 22 million Series A, where they developed deep learning software to improve breast cancer screening. Um, And Hugh led them to be the first UK company to receive the CE mark for a deep learning application in radiology. So long story short, Hugh knows his stuff about AI. He knows his stuff about radiology. He understands startups. He understands investment. It's a great conversation that we had. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And... Hugh is a pragmatist, he's a realist, and I get on with him really well for those reasons. He's always questioning, always curious, and as I say, for those that follow on social media, he's incredibly refreshing and entertaining, so I encourage you to do so. So head over to the description of this episode to follow Hugh, follow me, follow HS and everything that we do, and stay on top of everything in health tech. So enjoy the episode. Cool, so Hugh, welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing, mate? I'm very well, thank you for having me. Excellent. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Hugh? Uh, from my home office in sunny Surrey. Lovely. Whereabouts are you in Surrey? A small village called Banstead. Excellent. I'm in Weybridge, not too far from you. Um, cool, man. So for the benefit of our listeners, mate, tell us your story. I know that we've had a quick call before, so... And I obviously know you from before, so I know a lot about your background. But yeah, for, for everybody listening, mate, tell us, tell us all about yourself. Oh, well, thank you. Um, so yes, I'm, I'm a doctor uh, and a radiologist. Um, I, I trained in, in Brighton doing run-through training in radiology for five years. Um, and then I took an academic fellowship at the Royal Marsden, which is partnered with the Institute of Cancer Research in, in Sutton. And I spent two years there um, looking at prostate MR. And I did a lot of work on what's known as volumetry measurement of, of prostate tumors. And this was about the time that um, UNETS, which is a form of segmentation algorithm, really sort of took uh, the stage and so started experimenting with those. Um, and I produced my thesis um, uh, after two years there. I then um, took a sidestep into industry um, and went to work at a start, small startup called Babylon Health where I became, over the year that I was there, the, the lead for regulatory affairs um, to get the, um, the artificial intelligence side of the, uh, the chatbot of the app through uh, the CE marking process. It was, a, it was a class one device, low risk at the time. 
so we did that and that was actually the first um to our knowledge the first um CU marked ai driven medical app available on the app store so that was wow nice achievement i then uh went back into radiology um and became a consultant at guys and st thomas's in london um and spent a few months there and i had a slightly disappointing experience as a consultant i think when you're when you're trained in the NHS, you're told that the light at the end of the tunnel is to re- achieve consultancy. Yeah. There's going to be glory days after that. But mm. I found it was much of the same. And um, there were politics, which weren't just, you know, localized to that particular hospital. I think there's just politics involved in, in being a consultant in the NHS these days. Mm. I found that, well, I wasn't allowed to report prostate MR scans, which was what I spent two years of my life researching. Oh, wow. So, um, and at the time, I was just going to conferences um, to find out more about, you know, deep learning and, and uh, AI in, in radiology because things were picking up. And I met the founders of a startup called Chiron and we were talking and I became an advisor. And then slowly they started asking me, can I come in more uh, two days a week, three days a week and eventually full time. And I said to my, um, my training, not my training program, my, my, my clinical lead at Guys and Tommies, can I go and do startup half the week and NHS stuff the other half the week. And he took a few days to decide. And then he basically said, it's all or nothing. We either have you full time or you go out mm-hmm. to industry full time. And so that was, that was the breaking point for me. And I decided to go all in. Um, and I think I was one of the only radiologists in the UK at the time who had gone all in on, on AI and startup world. Um, so it was a big step, quite nervous, but um, made a success of it and became the clinical director at Chiron Medical, um, where we achieved um, another UK first C marking, class 2A of a deep learning device for, for breast cancer screening, and worked with an excellent team, um, forming collaborations with NHS trusts, um, and winning Innovate UK grants, and we won um, um, uh, Radiology Software of the Year, um, and things like this. So, so award-winning and, and grant-funded, and raised a big Series A, uh, for $23 million. Um, while I was doing that, um, I got invited quite by chance by Professor Eric Topol, um, who's an eminent cardiologist from the States, to come and help him with a, a review of the impact of new technology on the NHS, which Jeremy Hunt, the health secretary at the time, had, had commissioned. And there were three branches, one of which was looking at AI and robotics. And Eric asked me to co-chair the um, AI side with uh, Professor Michaela van der Schaar. Cambridge and so we spent a year doing that and that was great meeting all of the sort of tech industry and the NHS um, tech leads um, and produced this seminal report the Topol review which I think um, most of your listeners hopefully would have read by now Um, and then Eric on the back of that asked me if I would be associate editor at the journal um, that he edits which is Nature Digital Medicine so now I keep abreast of all of the uh, the findings of uh, AI (laughs) and deep learning in medicine inundated with papers on a weekly basis, um, making sure that you know, the research is of high, high quality and high caliber. Um, and now I've formed a, a consultancy. I've, I've sidestepped again, and now I, I work f- um, for myself. Uh, I've set up a company with um, a friend of mine. Uh, it's called Hardian Health, and, and we consult on all aspects of bringing AI into the clinical space, not just in radiology. So we focus on NHS trusts who want to understand more or might want to do procurement and due diligence around purchasing an AI system. 
we work with startups on their clinical strategy um, and their regulatory um, approvals and help get them funding. And we work with investors as well. And you'll know this, there's a bit of a space in the uh, in investment um, sector for deep expert knowledge. Mm, let's call it a knowledge gap, Hugh. Yeah, and, <laughs> and it, you know, investors don't have uh, clinicians at the level of consultant um, advising them. Um, and so we, kind of, we offer that service as well. And um, the investors do, you know, do appreciate that, that extra bit of due diligence. Yeah. I think there's a lot of hype out there and being able to dig through it and find out you know, what's really happening under the hood. I think is a key process in the due diligence of, of, of raising funds. Awesome. And what a background. Um, what a journey as well. I mean, the, I want to take you right back to the becoming a consultant, having that kind of experience where it, it, it's funny, mate, because so often I try and find examples of, you know, that frustration that you sometimes feel as a clinician and there will be clinicians listening that have gone through similar things to you, but it's such a good concrete example of how the system just isn't set up to extract the best from its staff in that you weren't allowed to report prostate MRs with that being the very subject matter of, of your research for two years. And it just goes to show, doesn't it kind of how, the system can just lead to, to such a short sightedness, which mm. led to frustration in you, which led to, you know, talent leaving and, and yes, going and doing other things that have certainly come back and added value to healthcare. But it's that, it's also that thing of, you know, you weren't allowed to like even just split your time. It's just because the system's not set up for it. And it's, it's a shame. It really is. Absolutely. Um, and you know, it, at the time it was, it was quite, there was quite a lot of pressure on the service just to get the, the routine radiology workload reported. You know, these were the yeah. CTs, the backlog of chest X-rays. And as a new consultant, you have less say in a department of, over what you're going to be doing. But to find that something that you'd, you know, dedicated two years of your life to researching and then saying, mm. no, you're not allowed to do that was a bit grating. That wasn't the only reason I left. I also wanted, as you say, to, to, to find time to have that kind of portfolio. Yeah. And you're right, the NHS doesn't really allow clinicians to do that. Um, and actually, one of the things that I really pushed for in, in, in the top all review was the section on educating the workforce and creating sort of these, these roles where clinicians could take time to go and learn uh, and get involved with this stuff. And we've created um, top all fellowships. So there are now doctors who are allowed, to, a, 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 doctors and nurses, any um, profession in the NHS can take time um, out of their day-to-day work, training or working for a consultant. I was going to say, it's funny you say that because, um, so I wrote a, when the Top Review came out, I, I wrote a Forbes article on this. And one of, the, one of the things I actually wrote about was how one of the actual sensible things to come out of that review was the fact that you create this army of, of clinicians slash digital health slash startup experts anyway, people that have got that sort of cross-sector experience and skill that can just sort of sit as a filter for departments or for clinical areas that can actually genuinely critically appraise all the technology and things coming in. I mean, it's interesting that you've now sort of gone full circle into doing that yourself across all sides of the table. You know, when you talk about your consultancy, you, you work on the supply side and the demand side, you're helping hospitals 
professionals understand it, you're helping startups get through it and you're sort of doing that matchmaking process almost of making sure that everybody can do that together. It's interesting because that that is definitely a reflection of what I think was the best thing to come out of that review, which is giving healthcare the knowledge and experience to genuinely appraise the technologies coming through so that they just select good startups and that they just select good technology. It seems like a really sensible thing to do. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, for, for me, um, I've always been um, slightly an out-of-the-box thinker um, and doing the sort of checkbox exercises that the NHS kind of makes you have to go through, the hoops you have to jump through, um, were always greater with me on, on a personal level. And anyone who knows me when I was a qualified, you know, practicing doctor will, will know that, that that's my personality type. So it's not for everybody. Mm. Um, some people like the stability of having you know a, a solid framework of which to work on them with, with strict rules and parameters with, with which they can operate um but i think when it comes to technology in the nhs um it takes those people with us with perhaps a little bit of a higher risk appetite um and a little bit more um of an exploratory nature who want to go out there and find those those experiences and they don't have to be as extreme as me and, and leave completely <laughs> um yeah we are just ludicrous extremes <laughs> exactly um I, I don't recommend that for everybody <laughs> neither do i it's nerve-wracking um but certainly things like you know the digital top of fellowships and and, and other um educational opportunities like the Dig digital academy that the nhs has um are, are great for for people who want to be a little bit more entrepreneurial and a bit more tech savvy yeah, actually, for the clinicians and people even that work in NHS management, I would say that fellowships are absolutely glorious in terms of giving you experience in something that you think you might actually want to do for the rest of your life. I, I jumped around fellowships a little bit, actually, just as I came out of clinical practice. It's a really kind of safe way to go and get experience in things that you might want to pursue in future. It's a good way of sort of testing the water and, you know, get a bit of nine to five under your belt as well and just see if that's what you like and sort Absolutely. of thing so actually i i thoroughly thoroughly recommend fellowships for those people listening but dude i want to talk about your move into tech then which does lead us quite nicely so as a radiologist we, well, i suppose we're going back you know a, f a fair few years now but the kind of as ai and and deep learning were coming over the horizon radiology was seen as very much low-hanging fruit there was obviously the the wave of panic and and stress from from the clin clinical side of it's going to take our jobs and and i don't really know what fueled all of that to be perfectly honest but it then obviously matured and came round i mean what point did you enter that kind of hype curve and what got you interested and what allowed you to sit on the fence of the technology rather rather than the clinicians that might have been uh, I, I don't know um resisting it coming in um really i completely by chance right place right time um the day that i was submitting my application to do my my md my research degree um at the royal marston a, a paper came out from a researcher called olaf ronneberger on unets which is the neural network i mentioned at the start which is about segmentation of images um so I just put in my application, well, let's see if we can segment prostate tissue using these neural <laughs> networks. So I sort of, that was in uh, 2014. Um, in fact, I applied in 2013. So this was really just oh, wow. the, 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 the start of the wave. Um, and while I was at the Institute of Cancer Research doing my, doing my degree, um, I wrote a few articles um, as the hype wave started just picking up momentum. And 
a couple of my uh, articles won me um, Science Writer of the Year awards. Um, I won it in 2015, and then I wrote another article the next year. I won it again in 2016. So I thought, well, I'm clearly on to something here. Mm. If, if my writing about this is picking up enough interest. Um, and that's when I started going around, you know, these early conferences about, about deep learning. And they weren't focused on, on radiology at the time. They were focused on ImageNet, which is the largest um, imaging database, um, just of, you know, cats and dogs and cars and things like that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so what fueled the panic in radiology was one conference, I think it was in 2016, where Professor Jeffrey Hinton, who was the guy who kind of invented backpropagation, um, which is the, the form, uh, the, the technique that has allowed these deep learning algorithms to become so much better. He said at a conference, um, and I'm going to paraphrase, he said, radiologists are clearly the coyote who run over the edge of the cliff and haven't looked down yet. They haven't realized that this, you know, their jobs oh, are going to be taken away. Um, and he said something along the lines of between five and 10 years, um, radiologists will, just won't have jobs. Um, <laughs> and this, this was just huge for, for, for my profession. Um, suddenly oh, all these radiologists, you know, um, uh, looked up and thought, what? And <laughs> I found myself in a position saying, well, hang on, I've been working with this kind of stuff for the past couple of years. It's nowhere near replacing. It, it can mm. measure things, yes. It can find patterns in things, yes. But it's not replacing my, all the things that a radiologist is trained to do, the, the clinical interpretation, mm. bringing in all of the history and the findings and, and previous scans and, and producing a coherent report that a human can then understand and action on. That, that's very different to what a deep learning network can do, which is just find things within the pixels and, and produce a measurement or a, a, a binary classification of yes or no. Mm. That's a very different thing. And so I kind of didn't, I saw this hype wave suddenly accelerate. Um, and I, you know, I'd already been paddling a little bit in it, but then suddenly this wave just, just took, took on a life of its own. And um, yeah, the rest, as they say, is, is history. So beyond that, then, you then obviously took the stance that this can be really useful and it can be really useful for the specialty. Hmm. Were you alone in thinking that or were you relatively alone in thinking that? Was the, was the majority still resisting? I mean, how did it come round to where it is now, which is a genuine conversation about AI being part of the team? I mean, were you part of that kind of transformation? Um, in a way, I think I played a, a small part. I'm quite active on social media and... I was writing a blog on the platform Medium at the time and just writing my thoughts about um, AI and radiology. And, and from the very start, I kept saying it's not going to replace radiologists. And I produced you know, coherent arguments of, of why I thought it wasn't going to be doing that. And this picked up some traction. And, uh, you know, even the big players like IBM started using my slides um, in their wow. talks saying, you know, uh, this, this, this radiologist is right. And I wasn't the only one. There are, there are many around the world who, who had also started research degrees and, and had worked in AI during sure. the previous um, decades before the, the AI winter came along. And, you know, slowly but surely, this, this, this kind of, I don't know, resistance rose up and said, look, it's not going to replace us. Don't worry. It's going to be augmentative. It's going to be assistive. And actually, one of the focuses of the Topol Review, again, was that and this is the phrase that Eric likes to use is it's going to give the gift of time. It's going to mm. free up the mundane routine, boring, repetitive tasks. Uh, let machines do that because machines are good at those things. And humans can spend a bit more time with patients in, 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 the, in the thinking and the kind of the reasoning realm of clinical diagnosis. Mm. 
And is that how you see it in the future? Do you think that's where it's capped? I think with the current state of technology, yes. Um, I just finished reading an excellent book by a chap called Gary Marcus called Rebooting AI. Um, and he goes on to talk about you know, all the limitations of, of, of deep learning. Um, and it, it, might, it may come across as slightly negative, but it's entirely true. Deep learning, and as he calls it, is kind of like an, an idiot savant. It's incredibly gifted at one specific individual thing, but completely has no common sense or, or regard for, for anything outside of that single mm. domain. And as you know, medicine is not a black and white exact science. There are so many to use a radiology pun, uh, shades of grey. Um, <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I think with the current state of deep learning, um, even if things get 1%, 2% better, because we are you know, hitting sort of 90% accuracy rates quite, quite frequently, mm. um, there's still going to be um, huge room for improvement in terms of bringing together um, common sense, understanding of real-world um, logic, um, and, and reasoning um, that, that really this deep learning systems a aren't designed to do and b will just never be able to do without some significant rethinking or additional form of, of, of computed cognition and you're a lot like me because you're a realist and you always want to frame things in what is this actually going to do how good actually is this is this technology you know you're very inquisitive you're as i say very much a realist and i guess that's led you towards i guess it's led you towards regulation in, in the sense that that's where you end up when you think about the people asking the questions what does this actually do is this actually going to solve problems you know the regulators are going to play a huge role in that yeah so what are your thoughts on the regulation of this space Oh, I have many. Um, <laughs> so in essence, I'd, I'd never, just to go back a bit, I'd never heard of regulation until I started at, at Babylon. And um, I, I think I was just doing a web search for, for something about the chatbot one day. And then I came across this organization, the MHRA, who are the, the regulator <laughs> yeah. of, software, uh, of medical device um, software in the, in the UK. And this, suddenly this whole world of regulation opened up to me. And I was like, wow, somebody else has actually already thought about this but nobody's put the dots together that AI needs to be regulated in the same way because AI in essence is software. Yes, it may learn for itself, but it's still software. Yep. Um, and so um, I got involved with the MHRA while, while working at Babylon, I had detailed conversations and they, it became quite apparent they had no internal expertise on deep learning or AI because it was such a novel technology. And they are kind of hand-tied because they have to follow uh, European Commission centralized um, standards. Um, the imagery has to, it can't really put its own bells and whistles on that. It has to combine it, uh, has to follow European standards so that any device built in the UK and approved here can be sold and used across Europe and vice versa. Um, and then the new version of the medical device uh, directives are now called the medical device regulations. And they do cover, not explicitly, but they do cover um, software like AI, which is more iterative um, in its development process. There is no kind of pure end point in developing AI. It's mm. always getting better if the developers are constantly training on new data. So th there is now remit for that. But my initial reaction was, I'm glad that there is some framework but the framework's not fit for purpose. Um, and it's been nice to see over the past sort of five years that, that changing. What's slightly disappointing is that there's been a lag in 
clinicians or at least academics understanding those regulatory barriers. So you see a lot of papers coming out from really top-notch academic institutes saying, you know, this ML algorithm can diagnose X, Y, and Z with 90% accuracy. And I think that's great, but it's completely useless because they're not legally allowed to use it on real life patients uh, unless they've gone through the medical device. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And these are lengthy, expensive and complicated. Um, And there are very few successful academic deep learning solutions that have spun out into products that that can actually be used in the clinical environment. Uh, I would say it's about maybe 1% of all the research that happens in academic centers on deep learning actually makes it to the clinical frontline and improving patient care. That's remarkably low. Mm. So what is your advice then for startups in this space that are building AI deep learning solutions? I mean, is it the case that they have to really look at this regulation stuff early? Because let's be honest, when you're, you, you found a problem to solve, you think you can solve it through AI, you're making all this you know, traction, mostly in your head, just thinking, oh, this is going to be amazing. It's going to do all these things. It then just gets incredibly boring very quickly as soon as you start thinking about, oh my God, I'm going to have to get this regulated. Yes. Is your advice for startups to actually just bite the bullet here and just get and just think about this really early? Yes, uh, it's, it's a day one thing for me. And I've advised several startups and, um, and I tweeted about this recently, three of them. Um, I did some you know, initial sort of advisory work for them and two of them chose not to engage with the regulatory stuff until they had what's known as a minimally viable product, MVP. Mm. And one decided to do regulation day one. And guess which one is now? trading and has a product in hospital. <laughs> and by engaging from day one, what does that actually mean? What does that actually look like? So um, first of all, taking the regulation seriously, it takes a commitment from the, the, the chief exec of your company to, to commit to the regulations. And in fact, one of the documents you have to submit when you want to get C marking is this statement of conformity from the chief executive. And it, it's, it's a company-wide culture of quality um and is that because it requires a lot of resource actually in order to do it so you are going to be slower in other places yes and this is where for me one of the biggest sort of tensions lie um particularly in vc funded startups which have to kind of move fast and scale very quickly but the regulations don't really care about your speed and your funding they want to know that what you're producing is safe and that takes time and effort to prove. Um, what I tell people is that when you are considering going down the regulatory route, first of all, you have to have mandated by the medical device regulations an in-house person responsible for, for, for the quality and regulation, regulation processes that you're going to undertake. That's the first thing. The second is you have to have certain certifications which are developed by ISO, which is the International Organization for Standards. It's a French acronym, hence the letters of the <laughs> order. Um, so th- there are these ISO standards, and there are thousands of these. And so you need to have specific ISO standards certified and audited by an external third party, which is known in regulatory speakers as a notified body. So you need to really start getting all this done straight, straight away. You need to build what's known as a quality management system. And this sounds incredibly boring and dull. And (laughs) on the face of it, it is. But essentially, you have to document everything that you do, every decision you make, and then you have to risk assess everything, every component of your software. What happens if this goes wrong? 
what happens if that goes wrong or sends this to the wrong module? You know, what, what's the failure point here? What's, what, what, what's our sort of way of, of overcoming this difficulty or this problem, this solution? And everything has to be documented, has to have a named person um, overseeing that. And traceability is a huge thing uh, within your quality management system that anyone who comes in to audit your system has to be able to view. Um, in essence, every four days you spend coding or engineering or building your system, you have to spend one day documenting it all. And so mm. this slows people down incredibly by at least 20%, plus it costs money. Um, you have to hire the right people to do it, and you have to have you know, the relevant system to do it. Um, so it is a, a part of building AI for, 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 for health tech that many people don't realize is out there. And when it does hit them, it hits them too late. And the other side of this is you can't fake a quality management system or build one in a week. It, it just mm -hmm. is not, it's not possible. It's like I said, it's part of your culture and it needs to be done, you know, from day one. one another thing to note is that in regulatory speak, um, everything boils down to, to one thing, which is what the intended use of your device is. And there are, you have to be very specific in what your intended use is. So, you have to say this device will find this disease in this population of patients if they've had this test with this much accuracy. Like you have to be very specific. And that often doesn't suit startups who potentially are still in research phase, producing sort of feasibility products, trying to sort of find a product market fit. That doesn't I want, really I want the flexibility to change. Exactly. And the intended use defines what risk class of device you are and how much regulation you need to go through. And if you change your intended use too much, you can find yourself going up or down a risk class and suddenly having to do a completely different set of paperwork and documentation. So you have to think very carefully right from the beginning, what is it we're gonna do? And that can often kill startups who don't have enough runway to be able to deal with this. Well, particularly if you've been working for two years coding every single day and building your product, then all of a sudden realize I've now got to do this in order to get regulated yeah. and have to go back and do 20% worth of two years of work Yeah. to then, you know, try and get up to speed. Meanwhile, still feeling under pressure from the chief exec and the board to still drive the product forward, get the product market fit, yes. all those different things. So God, yeah, I can completely see how it is quite literally a day one thing and actually relatively straightforward if you allocate the right resource yeah. sort it from day one actually it's not a particular thing which you, which now it clicks why you say it is about culture because then if you're not vindicated for spending the time documenting if it is built into the working hours as a startup as a team you're actually going to be a heck of a lot more productive because actually you'll just find a way in a system of doing that extremely quickly so that it probably yeah. doesn't actually take 20 percent of the, do, do you know what i mean it's Absolutely. I imagine that's the case in, in the in the uh, in the two startups that, uh, that that did do it. Yes, they, they they thought they could just sort of do it over two months, and unfortunately, the auditors want to see that you've had a working quality management system for at least three months. So um, that's not going to fly. Um, mm. But yes, it's it's a it's a culture thing, and in fact, the companies um, or indeed the academics who embrace this. Um, actually find that having a good working system in place actually focuses them. They can find yeah. problems quicker. They can trace everything. They Which is actually the intention of the regulators, right? If you, exactly. if you pick the right assessment, it actually drives the way that you do things. And in fact, you know, being first to market is often seen as a, 
a sign of success. If you're the first to get regulatory approval for a product, then, then you are first to market. So in yeah. essence, it, it's kind of absolutely mandatory that you have to do this um, if you want to be first to market. And, you, and everyone else is in the same boat. So mm. the people who skip it will never win. So you have to do mm. it and you have to do it well. It highlights another point, doesn't it, that, that health tech is very different to tech, isn't it? Because yes. if you're just building a SaaS solution and you're selling to consumers and you don't have to worry about this stuff, you can just blast this out. You can get a nice hockey stick of daily active users and then all of a sudden you can raise 20 million quid and, and away you go. That extra layer of regulation approval necessary it does slow things down it's something that I, I suppose the life science vcs get and they get inherently because they're the ones actually asking you for randomized control trials on top of that stuff yeah actually the tech vcs they're going to end up you know putting a lot of pressure on startups to get these things done which i think you alluded to at the start you've clearly been in situations where you've seen this tension and it, yeah it, it must be i guess unpleasant at times um, yes, it, it can feel very pressurized. And I think once you start doing priced funding rounds, so you've set a share price and then you've set a kind of target and you have this board of investors saying, right, hit that target. If you miss, you know, the right levers that you've, that you've agreed with your, with your um, board that, you know, we're going to hit, you know, so, such and such sales by a certain date. If you miss those because, you know, you fail your, your regulatory audits and things, it can be a real setback and you've got to remember that regulation is only sort of part of the puzzle you just mentioned clinical trials you know no one in the nhs is going to buy your software without you know clinical evidence and yes the regulations require a certain level of clinical evidence but not to the level of sort of peer-reviewed you know literature um independently performed studies um so there's there's the clinical trial aspect um all the regulation does in essence is ensure that the software is not going to crash or if it does crash, it fails gracefully. Um, it doesn't necessarily prove clinical outcomes and endpoints like a stage four drug trial would. Mm. Because obviously it feels far less holistic than that. Where do you, where do you think the technology, I mean, just position for me where the technology is right now, you know, broadly AI and radiology how accurate is it? What, you, you mentioned the figure of you know, up to 90% accurate and things. What can it actually do practically, do you think, right now? So, so right now, there are approximately 30 to 40 regulatory approved deep learning algorithms globally. Um, that's a ballpark figure because we don't know how many are CE marks because there's no central registry yet. One is coming called Udemy, but it doesn't exist yet. Mm -hmm. The FDA website you can search. Um, so they can do a range of things and they focus mainly on assisting radiologists in their reading of um, either plain film, CT, MRI or ultrasound. So the, the, the high sort of volume use cases are things like finding lung nodules on CT scans. And AI can do this incredibly well. And if you've ever looked at a CT scan, even as a non-radiologist, you'll just see bits and bobs everywhere. Picking out the ones that are actually nodules is a skill. And AI apparently can do it pretty well. And there's a few companies who've got um, products which are seeing some traction um, and good results in clinical trials already. Um, there are things like screening. So this could be breast cancer, which I've worked in before. It could be tuberculosis screening on x-ray. 
or it could be triaging of emergent findings in, in A&E. So things like bleeds in the head or fractures in the spine. And AI is very quick um, and, and, and good at finding quite, quite bundle abnormalities and even some subtle ones. And I've seen um, a few algorithms, particularly with brain bleeds, um, get a lot of positive feedback from radiologists who, who are using these. Um, there's also a kind of a class of deep learning algorithms which are not focused on the radiologist as the end user, but instead the referring clinician or the treating clinician. So an example might be of detecting a stroke um, in the middle of the night on a CT scan. And instead of alerting the radiologist, you alert the neurosurgeon who might come out and do a thrombectomy. Mm. And in America, they, they, they love this, not because the algorithm is accurate, it's because they get um, notified that there's a potential consultation for them to do at three in the morning <laughs> so they can bill extra for it. So it's so brilliant in America. Um, mm. um, and so, yeah, there's a whole, whole range. Um, and in fact, there's the, the global Mecca for, for, for radiologists is, is in Chicago every year in December. There's a conference held by the Radiological Society of North America. It's the largest medical conference in the world. And that this year, a third of the entire conference is dedicated to AI startups. So I'm very much looking forward to going and seeing wow. what people have produced. I think what I'm seeing, though, is a trend that essentially most of the use cases have now actually been addressed. So we can now measure the size of pretty much anything on any scan. We can measure its change over time on any scan. We can find the presence or absence, so a yes or no, of pretty much any pathology. So most of those use cases have now been solved. What hasn't been covered in radiology is all the things that happen either side of the purely <laughs> diagnostic process. So you will know as a junior doctor, you've queued nervously outside of a radiologist's office wanting to request a scan, right? Indeed. And in the NHS particularly, the, the radiologists are known as sort of grumpy people who live in dark rooms and say, Absolutely. No, say no to everything. <laughs> um, in America, they tend just to scan everything because because a scan equals money. But in, in, in the NHS, we have um, uh, it's part of the job to make sure that we say no to scans which aren't. It's actually where you learn sales as a junior doctor. Genuinely. There you go. <laughs> genuinely, because you have to sell your patient in. You have to yeah. frame it in a certain way, and you have to you know, a bit of spin, a bit of, you know, selective information here and there to make sure that your scans done ahead of everybody. You know, it happens. It is where you learn sales. Exactly. So um, I think it'd be very interesting to try and apply some form of AI. It doesn't even, doesn't even need to be deep learning. It could be decision tree for, you know, for I care, but some kind of AI to help clinicians manage or decide what is the best imaging modality of choice. Because often you will come down and ask for an MRI but that's kind of like you, you've put it in the MRI bucket, but there's, you know, 300 different sequences. The radiologist has to choose which one to do. Mm. And that's where AI could, could help. And um, then there's the whole um, acquisition process. So the radiographers taking the images have to plan each image. So the patient will lie down on the gantry of the table. They'll do a scout and then they'll manually say, right, we're going to scan from here to here, or we're going to time this um, area of the aorta to make sure the contrast hits at the right time. AI can help with all of this sort of acquisition planning. AI can also help speed up the, the time um, it takes to scan, particularly in MRI. I've seen great solutions for speeding up MRI from taking an MRI scan from an hour down to about you know, 20 minutes. Or you can reduce dose of CT scans, uh, reduce dose of nuclear medicine scans and things like that. So there's a whole sort of pre 
reading thing that can that can be applied and then afterwards um the biggest uh, i think pain point in radiology is the reporting size so at the moment radiologists produce blocks of text reports and then a summary at the bottom now you as a referring clinician will often just read the summary and you won't read all the the prose that, that, that we've written in our lengthy report and i think we're missing a trick here in terms of um using the, the data in, in to its fullest i think we could be codifying that data at source as the radiologist is dictating and making sure that every single thing that they mention is tagged in some kind of way and then that data can then be pulled out to produce a prose type report in a structured way and then you could translate that into a lay report for the patient or you could provide a different report say you have an mri spine you might want a different type of report for the spinal surgeon and the neurologist they might want to know mm, some things so there's a lot of areas where I think AI is still yet to play a part in, in radiology. And until it can do that whole pathway, the whole value chain, it's not going to replace a single one of us. You know, there's a, there's a couple of things that really hit me there. The first one is going back to when you said the intended use is so important to get things through the regulator. It seems that companies really are and they have to really drill down into a really specific value proposition like super specific you really can't be everything to everyone in this space there aren't really companies that do that and i guess on the flip side that's actually what the buyers kind of need they kind as you say the buyers kind of need it to solve a problem end to end there's no point going through a huge process just so it can do specifically lung nodules in a specific CT for specific type of, you know, it doesn't really solve a big enough problem to, for all the hassle that it's going to be to implement that and, and change the way that clinical practice is done. And it also shows to me that just how much you need an understanding of the problems in order to genuinely have good ideas in this space. And it, cause again, it hits me that for people that are, in AI that are in deep learning, how are they going to know that a decent problem to be solved in healthcare is actually, can you predict the right type of MRI in order to reduce the dose in this few specific use cases? You know, it seems that there really needs to be a forum or some sort of space whereby these problems are really out there and put in front of experts that can actually solve the problem. And I don't know if you've got thoughts on that. Um, well, first of all, I, I agree. And I think, um, having that expertise is absolutely crucial and something that I really enjoy doing. Um, and I think what I see a lot of is startups who gain through whatever means access to a lot of imaging clinical data and then form a startup and say, right, we're going to use this data to build lots of algorithms. And then they quickly discover that, you know, to, to build an algorithm, they have to do it, as you say, for this very niche yeah, tiny little part of the radiology chain. And then suddenly you need to statistically power the amount of data that you have. It has to be expertly labeled because images don't yeah. come out of the scanner with, with expert labels mm -hmm. on them. Um, and so that suddenly you see a lot of these very well-funded startups. They can build one or two algorithms and then they sort of get a bit stuck because the value realization isn't there a hospital is not going to pay millions of pounds for an algorithm which finds one thing on a subset of its right. patients, unless that one thing is a real massive healthcare problem um, that's actually costing the hospital a lot of money anyway. Um, it's, it's very difficult to see. So what I kind of predict 
And it'd be interesting to see this play out over the next year is this market is going to massively consolidate. There are, yeah. there are hundreds of startups uh, specifically in the AI radiology sector. There are hundreds of them and they can't all survive. Um, there will be a consolidation and a collapse of, the, of this market. And that's probably a good thing. Um, and I think the, the best of breed may, may win or they may combine um, or they may get bought out by you know, the incumbent big players, the GE, Siemens, Philips, IBM mm. of this world, uh, or even now the newer players into this market who've got infinite capital, Amazon, Google, Apple, you never know. Um, um, I've, I've, I've long said that Google one day is just going to buy a hospital. It's, it's just the way it's going to go in order to be able to manage this kind of um, in-depth technical stuff. And which, if we see this acquisition play uh, play out, which of the startups out there do you think are going to be acquired? I don't need, to, I don't need you to name names, but do you think it will be the loudest or do you think it will be the best in terms it'll, of clinical evidence and, and regulation, all those different things? Oh, it'll be the best. It'll, it'll be the ones who mm. have taken regulation seriously and mm. have um, clinical evidence and health economics um, you know, research to back up their, their, the, the need for the algorithms. Um, it's also about the teams as well. Um, you need to have really good, well-engaged clinical advisors um, and good data scientists and engineers. And I think the third piece of the puzzle that we haven't really spoken about yet is integration into the existing IT infrastructure, which, <laughs> which in the NHS is on this, mate. <laughs> uh, in the NHS, this is this is the hardest thing to do. You can build the sexiest AI in the entire world, but it has nowhere to go if you're trying to plug it into a background IT infrastructure built on MS MS DOS with ten layers of APIs. It's, it's just not going to work. Mm. So um, the integration piece is also one way that people are going to succeed in this sector. And how do startups do that well of the startups out there? Because it is incredibly difficult. And again, is this a day one play? Do you need a, a, a I was going to say a large clinical partner, but I guess, do you need any clinical partner with you from day one helping you build this in? I mean, what, what, what have you seen that works? So we're kind of lucky in radiology in that we have quite a quite well digitized infrastructure already. We are pretty much the only clinical uh, speciality which is almost entirely digital in the way we, we run. Yeah. Um, we have PAC systems, picture archiving communication systems. We have RIS, radiology information systems, and we connect to the EHR. So we have these systems. And PAX is theoretically has a, a standard called the DICOM standard by which images and information can be transferred. So we're quite lucky in radiology that uh, startups can you know, get involved with those standards and build software that does plug into them. Um, I think where, when you ta start talking about AI outside of radiology, for instance, in pathology, digital pathology is still in a very nascent phase. There's really nowhere for, for these algorithms to plug into. So a lot of, of investment needs to happen in the infrastructure of, of, of AI or just even IT in the NHS. Um, I did a lot of work with the UK Breast Screening Programme and they have a lot of you know, AI companies, including where I used to work, wanting to work with them. But they're current system that they use to run the screening program it just doesn't have apis you can't plug into it so it, there's a there's a, that's the main issue there um so i and i think the same is think with with big products like you know emis or epic and, and cerna and things they, they aren't quite ready for for at least a plug and play um, kind of marketplace yet 
So it does seem to be that clinical partners early that can help you do that would be the most ideal, but still extremely difficult to achieve. Yes. Mm. It's often why, you know, you're going to need people within the founding team that have got those links in and, and that give you that unfair advantage because absolutely building it in is, is, is the, I guess the panacea for the startup, but it is obviously incredibly hard to do and, and you need an unfair advantage in order to do it. I mean, CIOs must just be inundated with requests for this stuff. You know, they must just get their doors banged down by so many different startups looking to plug in or looking to get bought by the, by the hospital or, or whatever it is. You know, this, this, it just happens on such a scale that it doesn't really support this uh, at a level that, oh, we'll just do the plug-in. Um, scenario it, it is just such yeah. a hard space to be in there is nowhere to plug in um, yeah and a lot of people you know therefore they they develop their own proprietary way of showing the outputs to to the end users this might be via a web interface or an app but you know you try find a spare computer in an nhs hospital where you can go to a, a website that, that works in internet explorer it's, it's very difficult um and not everyone has the app on their phone at the right time or can get wi-fi connections so very difficult to do you know, it's such a, it's such a really good, just classic human factors, realist point that in order to find a free computer that's got enough random access memory to even run Internet Explorer, which is the only browser on it, you know, it, it is just ludicrous, the situation in, in yeah. some places. I can remember when I was a, when I was an F1, one of the pieces of work that I did, I, I worked on MAU and I, I did the most amount of discharge summaries of any human being in that hospital. And it was just incredibly frustrating because of literally this. I could never find out a computer. If I did, it took, them, it took about eight minutes to turn it on. And then it was loading up a load of different software. And I just, I just literally got everybody in the room from IT, the consultants, the juniors, um, even some software companies and just got them all in, in, like a, in like a room, called it like a focus group and just, and just, and just moaned at them and was just like, please just sort this out. This is absolutely ridiculous. The amount of doctors staying late to do this thing, which they could probably do in two seconds on the phone in their pocket, but it just doesn't plug into your systems. It's just crazy. You can up morale, you can up productivity, you can save on all these different metrics of how much you're paying us per hour, all these, however you want to count it fine, but just solve the problem guys. Cause this is just getting out of hand. Yeah. It's just such a good point about the infrastructure. I completely agree. And you know, even as a radiologist where we are very technical, uh, we still had issues all the time with packs going down and things like that. So <laughs> I, I completely sympathize. And so back to my points on trying to integrate AI, well, very, very tough to do. If, if, if a human has to have, go through that kind of you know, lengthy process, just simple <laughs> tasks, try plugging yeah. in state-of-the-art AI. Yeah. It's, just, it's just not going to happen. <laughs> it's such a good point. It's sort of like the, the hierarchy of needs, isn't it? That if you, if you can't get, can I turn the computer on in less than eight minutes? If you can't get that right, I mean, try, yeah. try and yeah. plug in the deep learning. I think we are, we are a little yeah. bit off. You can't upload your MRI scan to a distant server. Um, <laughs> if you can't check your email exactly that's a good quote that i'll put on some social media stuff um cool but but obviously there is light at the end of the tunnel isn't there this stuff is all happening in parallel there are infrastructure changes happening it is it is going to get there at some point and i guess the people that you're advising are going to be right at the front of the queue when when we do eventually get there that's the plan yes so there's one more thing I want to ask you about, which is something that I didn't actually know of you, that you edit, date, is it Nature Digital Medicine? Yes. What an incredible gig that is. Great role. 
It's, it's, it's a privilege, actually. Um, Eric asked me to help um, edit um, the, the, the journal uh, on the back of our interactions on the Topol Review. Um, so I don't actually review the papers. I read every single one that comes through the editorial desk, mm. decide if it's appropriate for the audience. Um, and, I, and we've been helping design sort of set criteria for, for what we can and can't accept. And the bar is raising all the time. No longer do we just accept kind of what we call feasibility studies saying, here's a research institute who did an algorithm on 100 x-rays. What we're, what we're now wanting to see is um, independent third-party evaluation, so you, use of an algorithm on different data sets, um, but also um, prospective studies. These, this is really sort of where we're at, we are at now with AI. Can you show that your AI does what it did in your lab in a live clinical environment? And you'll be surprised at how often the accuracy drops and issues become into play mm. so good solid prospective studies is is what we're looking for um at nature digital medicine interesting i'll send you one that skin analytics just did actually which okay. is really interesting in um ai and dermatology really good one to look at even for the people listening neil actually came on the podcast last week so um yeah i'll ping you that here you can have a look you can have a review of it for, for, for your little magazine <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. um cool dude what a podcast has been. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. I say every week that I've learned a lot, but genuinely incredible work that you're doing. I think the advice that you can give people, and I, I mean this on both sides of the coin as well, you know, the supply side and the demand side, the hostel side and the startup side, it seems that you've really carved an incredible niche for yourself by just following your curiosity and understanding of the space. I think it's a really interesting space to be in. It's certainly a growing space. And I can imagine a few people will be in touch to get some of your expertise from the people that listen to this podcast. Um, and the way that we end these dude is that I hand back over to you to summarize just a little bit about yourself, a little bit about what you're up to with all your different roles and to close us out with any asks that you might have of our audience who range from everything from clinicians to investors to people in health tech startups, entrepreneurs, etc. So by all means take us away and close us out here. Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm Dr. Hugh Harvey, a consultant radiologist who's been um, in academia and industry, and I now consult independently um, uh, in the AI space, not just focused on radiology. So if you're a startup, um, if you work in academia, uh, if you work at a clinical institution, or if you're an investor interested in this space, then always happy to help out and, and give some of my um, expertise and experience um, to you. Um, so um, any asks that I might have of the audience, just get involved um, with the regulatory side of things. Start reading the research papers and see what good AI research looks like and take a leaf um, from, from their books. Um, there's a huge community. Get involved on social media. Um, come to the conferences. Come to the events. Um, and keep pushing to improve NHS IT infrastructure because it's the backbone of everything that we're going to do and it's the only way we can deliver AI to the patients of the UK. Could not agree more. And I encourage all of the listeners of this podcast to follow Hugh on social media. He is both informative, realistic, and often hilarious and often cutting as well to certain people. So I definitely recommend Hugh. He definitely doesn't mince his words on social media. And Hugh, how can people get in touch with you if they want to find you? Um, so yes, I'm on Twitter, Dr. Hugh Harvey, um, or you can email me, Hugh, at hardyandhealth.com. 
Awesome. And I'll put all the links to Hugh's socials and emails in the description of this episode. So Hugh, thanks so much for coming on, dude. Um, let's grab a beer soon. Thank you so much for having me, James. It's been a pleasure. Hey, everybody, and thanks for listening to this week's episode and making it all the way to the end. If you enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow us on all of our socials so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.